Greetings and welcome to Have Disability, Will Travel. In this podcast, we journey around the world and talk to people in the accessible travel industry, influencers, nonprofits, travel companies, and people like you and me who don't let our disability get in the way of a great vacation. My name is Josh, and I'm glad you're along for the ride. So grab your passport and let's get going. In this episode, we talk with Lois Strahang. Lois got in touch with me to discuss accessible travel podcasts. As we corresponded, I decided to read her book, A Different Way of Seeing, and then began listening to her podcast, the Accessible South Africa Travel Podcast, after they started broadcasting. Throughout the interview, I was reminded again and again about why I started this podcast, as well as the Accessible Travel Forum, to create community and to learn from each other. Our chat not only introduced me to a new set of challenges faced by many travelers, but also helped to deepen my understanding of what travel really is at its core. But let's get to Lois and let her tell it in her own words. Hi Lois, thank you for joining us today. Hi Josh, it's good to meet you and thanks for inviting me to join you on the Have Disability Will Travel podcast. Well, we're fellow podcasters, right? You all That's right. I do, yes. What's it called? It's called the Accessible South Africa Podcast. Okay, well, that leads perfectly into the next question as to where you're from. Um, so you're, you're from South Africa originally, or are you uh, an implant? Or? I was actually born in the UK, and I moved to South Africa when I was about four years old. So I, I consider myself a South African. Okay. But when I'm in the UK, I'm told I sound South African. But here in South Africa, people tell me I sound very English. The best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, well, this podcast is about disability. Um, and so, you know, I was wondering if maybe you could tell everybody um, the disability that you have. I am totally blind. I was diagnosed with type 1 or insulin-dependent diabetes when I was about six years old. And whether I just didn't know or didn't care but I understand that it's quite common for people with diabetes, especially if they've been diabetic for a long time, that it's quite common for them to people to develop um, complications like eye problems. And I lost my sight as a result of uh, my diabetes. So I am totally blind. Okay. What age were you when you lost your vision then? I was just over 21 years old. Okay. So you were in university around that yeah, age? I was in my final year of my Bachelor of Arts degree. Okay. So that must have been quite a, a change for you then, I guess. Was it difficult to go through that process? I think I was actually quite fortunate because I had all the right building blocks in place. You know, my attitude has always been to be about problem solving and finding solutions, not about finding problems. Um, I had a great support system and I received some fantastic training. And I decided very early on that I was not going to go home and just give up, that I wanted to go out and see what the world still had to offer me as someone who was blind in a sighted world. Right. How, how do you navigate the world? Do you have uh, guide dogs or do you use a cane? Or Can you tell us about that? Normally, if I'm at home or if I'm in South Africa, I'll work with my guide dog. I've had three guide dogs in total, working with my third now. 
But if I'm traveling, more often than not, I tend to walk with a mobility cane. Okay. And uh, do you get a lot around by car in the UK, uh, in, sorry, in South Africa or by train or how does most, most people get around? I think, you know, we have one of the biggest challenges we have as disabled people in South Africa mm-hmm. is our infrastructure is not necessarily great. It's fine in the in the cities, but outside of the cities, it becomes a bit more difficult. So I have done a fair bit of train travel. Um, most often I travel by car. So I am so, so profoundly grateful that mm-hmm. Uber and particularly Uber Assist is so active in South Africa. Oh, that's great. Yeah, such a real life changer, isn't it, to have Uber and just be able to call a car instead of asking somebody for a ride all the time. Um, Absolutely. I grew up in Canada, and uh, I can't drive myself, so, uh, you know, I lived actually on a farm. Uh, so anywhere I wanted to go, I'd always have to ask somebody. So yeah, it's really nice to have a, a set of a set of, uh, independence and stuff like that. So. For sure. And I know there are a lot of people who don't have that independence and I'm really grateful that I have the financial resources, that it's mm. not an issue for me. Mm. Speaking of financial resources, um, what do you do for a living? Oh my word. Um, <laughs> I am currently working as a, a, a professional speaker, author, a blogger, podcaster, and primarily in the field of disability. But my background, I spent 17 years working in a marine engineering consultancy as working up my way up from receptionist up to office manager. So I've done the office job thing (laughs) and I'm loving the freedom of of creating my own content and having the creativity of being self-employed. So can you tell us a little bit about your your podcast before we get into our interview? The podcast is the Accessible South Africa Travel Podcast, mm-hmm. and it's um, part of a platform called Accessible South Africa. It's based on a website, www.accessiblesouthafrica.co.za, which is a resource for people coming into South Africa who want to learn about some of the accessible options that are available to them, some of the service providers who are accommodating the needs of people with special needs. And just giving people the opportunity of sharing their stories because Mm -hmm. there are some incredibly inspiring stories out there of persons with disabilities who are doing the most extraordinary and wonderful travels. Great. I think you also have a a rodent friend that you sometimes write about as well. Uh, Can you tell a bit about uh, Missy Mouse? Missy Mouse. I became an author almost by accident. When I started learning to use a screen reader, Uh which is the way a visually impaired person engages with a computer or a smartphone, um, my computer teacher told me that the best way for me to become comfortable using the software was Mm -hmm. just to use it. And I didn't want to transcribe other people's work or anything like that. And I decided, let me just start creating. So amongst the things that I wrote were a lot of songs, which my band has played, um, some poetry, some short stories. And amongst those short stories were four stories about a young blind mouse named Missy Mouse. And they are, they've been recently been turned into children's books, illustrated children's books, to oh, wow. help children understand that a person who's blind is simply a normal person who just does things in a different way. 
Great. And they're available on Amazon? Or- they are, yes. All my books are available on Amazon.com. All right. So we'll tell the people about that afterwards then for sure. Okay. Well, I started uh, Accessible Japan a number of years ago, and I think one of the, the most humbling things about starting it was realizing how little I know about disability. Um, now I have uh, cerebral palsy, and I use it in a power wheelchair, and I have all my life. Uh, so, you know, I'm sort of the poster boy for, um, you know, disability, uh, or at least what a lot of people have an image of as being disabled. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I think a number of times as answering people's inquiries about travel to Japan, I kept being blown away about how little I knew about the vastness of different types of disabilities. And, uh, and you know, so because we both have disabilities, but I, I have to admit that there's so much I have to learn about uh, um, visual impairment. And so I think one thing that I had a lot of impression is that, and I think a lot of people have, is that people with visual, visual impairments don't travel or do touristy things. Um, and, you know, because, you know, we have that horrible word there. It's, you know, sightseeing. But if you can't see them, you would, you don't do it, right? Is it <laughs> thing a lot of people have. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could sort of break that image for us and tell us at least a few or, or all of the places you have uh, been traveling and traveled to. Well, before I get to that, let me just start with that myth that there's no reason that a visually impaired person should travel. I travel for exactly the same reason as person, people with sight. You know, people with sight travel to experience new places, new cultures, to experience new foods, and it's exactly the same for me. The mm. only thing that differs is the techniques that I use. Mm. So it's probably quite a long list to list all of them, but I've had the privilege of traveling to 21 different countries since losing my sight. Some wow. in Africa, um, some in Europe, and some in North America. So I've, I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to, to really experience a large number of different places, different experiences, different cultures, different peoples, and different languages. And every time I travel, mm-hmm. it's something new and something different. Oh, that's great. So then that is a very wrong assumption then, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Look, travel isn't for everyone. Right. And in, in that, it's the same for, for sighted people or for, it doesn't matter. You know, right. travel isn't for everyone. We know that. Mm. But there are people amongst the visually impaired community who do love to travel and who do gain a huge amount of value when they do so. Okay, so you mentioned that you experience, you know, through uh, different cultures and food and language and sense. Um, can you explain a little bit more about that? Like, is there something that, you know, a particular scent that you associate with a certain place or a food in the, um, you know, that you uh, will never be able to forget, for good or for bad? Uh, there are so many different stories, but I think the, the simplest thing for me to do is really just to explain about how I use my other senses. Right. Because... When I travel, no matter where I go, I start off by trying to understand a little bit about the context of the place that I'm going. Right. So I do a lot of research into the story, the peoples, and, and get an idea. I start building a framework of a picture of what to expect when I get to that place. And then when I'm there, I use my senses of hearing, of scent, of touch, and ambience. Mm. to really just fill in the details of that picture and, and make it a three-dimensional picture in my mind. So it's 
and every place that I've been, I've, I've learned different things and everywhere has specific images mm. and specific memories. I've, I've, I build up, I suppose, visual memories, experiential memories, mm. sensory memories. That, that's really how I, I, I to, to, with the word in inverted commas, sight see or sight experience as I prefer to use. But it really is about using the senses that I do have to build a more complete experience of right. what a place is like. Okay. Um, now, for myself, you know, in a wheelchair, when I'm looking at places I wanted to visit, someplace that maybe is very, you know, has a lot of ruins or is very poor infrastructure, obviously, would maybe be a place that I would avoid. Um, and there'd be maybe uh, modern places with great infrastructure that would be someplace I'd want to go. Is, does that come into effect at all when you're deciding where you want to go? Or um, are there places that are sort of more accessible or less accessible for someone with a visual impairment? I think the big difference between traveling with a physical or mobility impairment and traveling with a visual impairment mm -hmm. is for someone who has a physical barrier, that physical access is crucially important. Mm -hmm. Where for me as a visually impaired traveler, it's really more about access to information. And I'm going to be absolutely honest about this. I usually travel with my husband right. or with a sighted person. Okay. As much for the independence that it gives me or the ability to move around, mm. but as much for that, but also because for me, travel is something that needs to be shared mm. because a wow experience becomes doubly so if you can share it with someone. Exactly. So I, I prefer to travel with people. Right. And that does mean that I have far fewer challenges in terms of accessibility. So for me, especially with a, a background in ancient history, right. I love going to places like ancient ruined sites. And um, I loved going to Italy. I loved going to Greece mm. for that very reason because I was able to visit the places that I'd studied as ancient civilizations. Right. So you mentioned you research a lot before you go. How, how do you get most of your information? Are there barriers to that as well? Um, I think I, it really does depend. The, I start mostly by Googling, and right. I, I get a lot of information from that. A lot of the travel sites that are out there, I find, are very information-rich, mm. which is both an advantage and a disadvantage. Okay because it does take time to learn how the screen reader engages with a site, a website, right. and then to learn how to navigate that. So some of the things are very visual. Mm. So for example, it's not gonna be me who's gonna hop online and go onto Airbnb or booking.com and choose the hotel because there'll be images of what it looks like, right. which are totally inaccessible to me. You know, a room is a room is a room, <laughs> where that can be quite a big factor for, for when we're deciding where to stay. So some things like that, I'll leave that up to my husband, who is sighted. Mm. But certainly the research about the places, the stories, the historic events, I'm very happy to do that. As with anything, I think some websites are more accessible than others. Right. So I'm not going to not go on to places like TripAdvisor or any of the, 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 the sites where you're getting the mm -hmm. social proof of what an experience is like. But I won't be the one checking Google Earth or anything like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
Now, so um, when you travel, do you travel with your dogs as well, or do they stay home, or is it sort of a do you divide that by domestic or international, or how does that work? I think a lot of it depends on the specifics of the trip. If I am tra- traveling domestically within South Africa, I will often take my guide dog with me. Even you know, if I'm traveling alone or with with my husband, it doesn't matter. Um, if I know that I am able to reach out to someone on the end of a mobile phone or through WhatsApp or something like that, mm-hmm. then it means that if I do encounter any problems, I'm within reach of a security or safety system, right? a support system. But if I'm traveling overseas, and quite frankly, the biggest problem I have is that data is so expensive, having a South African contract right. um, using data internationally. So that means that if I'm traveling, I have less of the support structure. Okay. I, so that's really why I wouldn't travel as much with my guide dog traveling internationally. But also the logistics of traveling with a guide dog become harder. Right. And you have to look at geography. I mean, South Africa is far away from pretty much anywhere outside of Africa. Right. And asking a poor guide dog to sit in a cabin of an aircraft for 12 hours mm. to get to the Middle East or um, the Europe or to the UK, that that's a hard ask. Right. Because airplanes don't come equipped with portable patches of grass. <laughs> so that's one of those practical um, aspects. And also, I don't always know what the environment's going to be like where I'm traveling to. Mm. And it is, I don't feel comfortable taking my guide dog if I don't know what to expect when I get there. Right. But we, we always have someone who looks after the animals um, at home mm-hmm. and house sits for us. So I don't ever abandon my poor dog to fend for herself. But often if I'm traveling internationally, she gets a holiday too. Right. Have you ever taken her to an international location? I have taken her to Namibia. I'm not, not this guide dog. My previous guide dog traveled with right. me to Namibia, which is really only a two-hour flight from Cape Town, oh. but it is an international flight. Do, um, do you have to go through quarantine then, or is there some special situation that you can go through? Or In South Africa, I had to get from our state vet, I had to get a confirmation that all her inoculations were up to date before I could travel with her. Look, I think in most countries that have quarantine, guide dogs are subject to quarantine as much as any dog because no matter how well looked after they are, they are still dogs. Mm. And the risk is less that they would be carrying um, some some condition that would, is for the reason that they have quarantine, but it still is a risk. So I, I support the fact that Quarantine is quarantine, and there shouldn't be exceptions. Um, much as I know that that it can be, it can be a, a barrier for some people to travel. Right. Okay. I guess one of the questions I was asked a number of times uh, with the Accessible Japan website was, you know, bringing a guide dog to Japan, and um, you know, I was really surprised. Not only the quarantine procedures, but the law in Japan, um, the Japanese. It, uh, a Japanese guide dog has to be certified by the Japanese Guide Dog Association, mm-hmm. which means that somebody bringing a dog from somewhere else is not certified by that organization. So therefore, they're not allowed to use the services that are allowed the same rights 
as somebody who has a dog trained by the Japanese guide dog situation. So uh, the Japanese guide dog association has sort of come up with a workaround for it, but you know, it's really, it's sort of, you know, something I'd never really thought about before. And, um, you know, it's an extra challenge to travel. I think there's there's a lot of cooperation between the various guide dog training institutions around the world. So I, I think in a situation like that, it really would be a case of just contacting whichever guide dog organization in that country and saying, I'd like to do this. What can you advise? Right. Okay. Um, now getting to the more, a bit more practical aspects of uh, the actual getting onto the plane. So for someone in a wheelchair, maybe you would have to, you go and you check in your wheelchair and then maybe you're allowed to take it to the gate or they'll somebody go with you and stuff like that. For someone with a visual impairment, um, is there any special check-in procedures that you go through or happen to get onto the plane? It really depends if I'm traveling on my own or traveling with someone. Right. But usually I let the airline know ahead of time that I will be traveling, particularly if I'm carrying taking my guide dog with me. Mm-hmm. And then when I check in, there's obviously some additional work that needs to happen that they're just confirming the space for the guide dog, um, something like that. Right. If I'm traveling entirely on my own with or without the guide dog, they then hand me over to someone from the disability services at the airport who will then accompany me through the airport. But other than that, if I'm traveling with my husband, we just check in as normal right. and just go through security and go to the gate as, as anyone else would. Right. But I think if I'm, if it's slightly different if I'm working with the disability service at the, the airport itself. Mm. Um, there they do have processes and, and procedures that they follow, which sometimes seem to differ from flight to flight. But usually what is meant to happen is that if I get to the gate with my guide dog, the guide dog and I are allowed to uh, board the plane first because it makes it easier if there aren't other people and bags on the flight so the dog can navigate more easily. And we just take our seats and then other people come in. Okay. Um, But that doesn't always happen. And believe me, I have some stories about (laughs) taking guide dogs onto airplanes and uh-huh. the whole process. And there's a lot of that in my book. There's a whole chapter about uh, traveling and using a guide dog. Well, two different chapters, but. Oh, yeah. well, there's two chapters people have to read then. <laughs> we'll tell everybody how to get the book afterwards. Um, okay. Um, so you've arrived at your destination and you've gotten to your mm-hmm. whole hotel room. And yeah. uh, well, well, there's a lot of uh, similarities between hotel rooms. Um, you know, something in my mind is it must be difficult to get used to a different room every t- time you just stay somewhere different. Is that is that a challenge or is it not as much of a challenge as I thought? Or what do you think? If it's a room, it's, it's, it's not going to take me long to orientate myself around that room. Uh, the bigger challenge for me is navigating the wider, if I'm in a hotel, right. getting from the room down to the lobby, to the restaurant, anything like that. Mm. And I admit I'm a bit lazy on that one. I don't always bother to figure that one out. Right. But usually I actually tend to prefer staying in Airbnbs, okay. where, which would be a, a separate apartment in a sense, in which case all that I'm navigating is around the apartment, 
and my way down to the, the entrance to the apartment block or to the, the, the doorway out into the, out, the, big, the big wide world. <laughs> so that really doesn't pose much of a challenge. It just takes a little bit of time. And within a day, within an hour, I guess even, um, it's just a question of remembering where things are and how to get from one place to the next. Okay. Great. Um, next part, I'd sort of like to pick your mind about the travel industry in general, particularly mm-hmm. dealing with uh, people with uh, visual impairments. Um, and again, I've, I've looked at a lot of websites um, for around the world, and it seems, again, like most of the things are all about mobility issues. And, uh, you know, for me, that's great. Um, but I think there's, you know, a lot of uh, different disabilities, and particularly for your needs. Um, do you find that there's enough information out there in the first place? Or is it still quite lacking? For me, mm-hmm. in my own experience, there's sufficient. sufficient. But I understand that I'm traveling with a sighted person. Right. I think for people traveling on their own, there is a severe lack in uh, more information being available. And granted, we are able to fill in a lot of the gaps with using technology, but mm-hmm. certainly looking at some of the, the sites like your um, accessible travel forum, like other similar sites. I, I'm, I have also found that more of the focus appears to be on mobility impairment. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I understand that because that can often be the difference of whether or not you can go to a place. Mm-hmm. And I think it's different needs, but it's really up to us as a visually impaired community to start saying and sharing and putting ourselves out there and saying, this is the information that we need. Right. This is what we'd like to see. Mm. And this is what, what we need. So it's a bit of a give and take, I think, from both, both sides. Right. There could be more awareness from the, the travel organizations and there could be more involvement from the visually impaired community as well. Okay. So um, maybe there isn't as much as there could be. And, uh, but um, the stuff that is out there, do you find that it's... Um, <laughs> sorry, Google popped in there for a second in Japanese. Um, I, we'll leave that in for fun. Um, anyways, um, do you find that there's um, a lot of the sites um, are compatible with screen readers? Um, or is that something that's still quite lacking? You know, I, I think that the the websites are like any websites. There are some things that work and there are some things that don't. Right. One of my pet peeves with websites generally is things just go button and they don't tell you what that button is. Uh-huh. So incorrectly labeled buttons, um, possibly images that aren't labeled, that type of thing is not always accessible and can be quite challenging. Mm. But, you know, I think the screen readers are becoming smarter and the the experience of using websites, we learn to troubleshoot a lot of the inaccessibility that we find. It's also almost impossible to um, know how a website's going to come up because it can be it depends so much on which browser you're using, which screen reader you're using, mm. and you'll get totally different experiences of the same site depending oh, yeah. on what t- technology you're using. Yeah. Oh. But I do find, the, for me, the biggest challenge with the travel websites is just the sheer volume of information. 
Right. And one of my favorite buttons on any site is that button that goes, go to main content. Okay. So, yeah, that, that really does help because there's a lot of menus, a lot of drop downs, and um, those often are what take the time. But we, we have different ways of navigating websites right. that make it quicker. Okay. But it's, yeah. It, so generally, I'd say that things are coming a long way on the accessibility, mm. and a lot of companies are becoming more aware right. of screen reader accessibility. So it's being built in as an automatic function, which I think is great, okay. but there is still a way to go. Right, right. Okay. Um, uh, jumping to airlines and hotels, um, do you feel that there is something that could, uh, both of those industries could do to uh, improve their services for guests with visual impairments? Starting with the airlines, then we'll start it. I think the, the, the biggest thing really is around training, staff mm -hmm. training. Um, to make certain that the experience is consistent. And what I, one of the things that I would love to see, not from um, a necessity point of view, but just for an enjoyment point of view, I still find that there are very few airlines that have accessible in-flight entertainment. Oh. And um, I, I traveled l last year in right. June, and the airlines didn't have audio-described movies on their in-flight entertainment. Their information systems were inaccessible. In fact, I don't even recall being offered a Braille, um, any Braille um, kind of information. Oh. Where other airlines, I've, I've traveled on Emirates, which right. goes flies in and out of Dubai. And I found that Emirates, at least last time I traveled, had audio-described movies on their in-flight entertainment. The in-flight entertainment system wasn't accessible. I did right. need sighted help with that, but right. at least they had movies. And to be fair, I, I am aware that more airlines are now getting accessible in-flight entertainment systems as well as audio-described movies. So again, we're seeing movements in the right direction. So yeah, I think that, that would be a great help. And again, just really making possibly em employee and team training um, would be mm. a huge asset and focusing on the differing needs of people with different disabilities. I can't tell you the number of times that I arrive at an airport and people assume that because I'm blind, I must therefore need a wheelchair. <laughs> so, and, and I'm not the only visually impaired person who's had that experience. <laughs> so, you know, I think that there could be more um, work done to work with airlines to teach them that one size does not fit all when it comes to disability, <laughs> that we have different needs and different techniques will work for us. Right. That's, yeah. That's, I, I was just thinking, I, you know, I love doing this because, you know, I had never thought about the entertainment systems. You know, that's, <laughs> that's something I, I'm always thinking about mechanical things. I never thought about, you know, the, how do you spend that 12 hours you're on the plane? You know, that's something that I'd never, I'd never thought of. But so, and that's so great to talk about those kind of things. Um, about how, how about hotels? Is there improvements they could make? I guess training as well? Always. I, I think the, the more people who are out there with disabilities who are using the services, the more the, the service providers will realize the need mm. to train their employees to, to engage um, in, a, in a, 
in an informed manner. But, um, you know, it, it's so hard to say what services, what um, systems need to be put in place because everyone's needs are so different. Mm. Um, and to be quite honest, if I go to a hotel, I literally go there to have somewhere to put my bags down and somewhere to sleep and somewhere to shower. Right. And then that's it. The rest of the time I'm out and about investigating the city, mm. enjoying the, the experience of being in a new place. So other people I know prefer to spend more time in the hotel. So they want um, audio described movies on the entertainment system. So yeah, sure. I think there's a lot that hotels and the hospitality industry could be doing to be aware of the options that are available in terms of how they could make their services mm. more accommodating to, to those of us who travel right. in, with any disability. Okay. So I have a sort of an off-topic question, perhaps, I'm not sure, but um, um, have you find, I don't, do you read Braille? I know how to read Braille. I am right. not a fluent Braille reader. I, I very seldom use Braille um, in my life at the moment. Okay. Um, in your experience with Braille, though, do you find, is is the system the same internationally? How much does it differ? So there's, a, you know, obviously a language barrier when you go to every other country that speaks a different language, but I wonder how different Braille is as well. If you're I'm any. embarrassed to admit that I have no idea. Okay. I'd need to ask someone else. I, I have a number of, of colleagues who are, far more um, fluent in Braille and in the concepts of and the, the, the organizations right. around that work with Braille. So Okay, well, um, we will have that as a follow-up yeah. conversation sometime there. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. All right. Um, well, I just want to sort of head into our closing up lightning round. Um, first of all, I cannot recommend your book enough. Uh, it's called A Different Way of Seeing. Um, and you also have the Missy Mouse books as well, and they're all available on Amazon. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, they okay. are. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was really encourage everybody to pick up that book. It's, um, you know, it's. I think the best part about it was the sort of a, use a lot of humor and stories just to convey, um, you know, a lot of the questions we're talking about right now, but just how you get about your everyday life. And, um, you, know, you know, a lot of times people are, um, you know, afraid to ask questions. And so sometimes it's, it's just easier to go ahead and give them the answer that they probably want anyways. And I think your book does an excellent job of that. I learned so much. Um, um, and I was wondering if you could tell about um, um, some of your favorite music now, because um, I know you're a musician as well. And uh, I know music um, plays an important role in, I think, a lot of people's uh, travels. And, uh, you know, I like to have a, a playlist of traveling music or um, things when I'm getting ready for traveling. And actually, we have a Spotify playlist for this podcast. So I'm wondering if um, you could tell us three songs you like to listen to, and they can even be your own if you like. <laughs> I, I actually, I don't really have playlists that I take with me when I travel, okay. but I do have songs that remind me of particular travel experiences that I've had. So I can share some of those, and ah, if please, you've got great. time, share the stories behind them. Okay, yeah, for so sure. One of them is Katrina and the Waves, Walking on Sunshine. Okay which reminds me of a trip to Phoenix in Arizona, hmm. largely because I was at a conference and 
one of the social events on the Friday evening, there was a live band playing and the um, lead guitarist from the band at one stage walked up to the microphone and said, does anyone here sing Walking on Sunshine? Because we've been asked for it and the band knows it, but our vocalist doesn't. And my husband took my hand and stuck it up into the air and (laughs) I landed up on stage and sang Walking on Sunshine with the band. So that's a song that is a very much a travel story for me. Tal Bachman, She's So High, um, is a song that reminds me of Italy. Because when we were doing a lot of travel around Italy, we spent a lot of time traveling by train. Right. And that at the time was being used as a an advert for a chocolate bar and it seemed like every time i turned around i would just hear those first two lines from the chorus of that song so it it became very much integral to the memory of italy okay and one more right from my most recent trip and i suppose this is quite an obvious one Uh nina 99 red balloons Okay. From my trip to Berlin. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, I'll absolutely add those to the um, the playlist then. Do you, are, are your is there any of your music on Spotify? Not yet. No. Uh, we do have some available on my website, and I think there's some on the band. Still has a website up with more music on there as well. But okay. we haven't actually gone to the 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 links of getting it on Spotify or to Apple Music or anything like that. Well, that works perfectly into my last question then about how to get in touch with you. So you mentioned the songs are on your website um, and there's a lot more on your website. What kind of stuff can people find on your website? My Beyond Site blog is there. And through the website, you're able to access any of my social media as well. Or you can contact me as well through an email. Okay. Uh, the website is www dot loisstrachen.co.za uh, sorry www.loisstrachen.com com, so that's, okay. yeah l-o-i-s-s-t-r-a-c-h-a-n dot com okay. and or I'm available on Twitter at loisstrachen z-a okay. um, I'm on Facebook I have a, a Facebook page Lois Strachan, A Different Way of Seeing. And then, of course, you can also um, look at the Accessible South Africa platform mm-hmm. and you can contact us on by website, www.accessiblesouthafrica.co.za, on Twitter, at AccessibleSA, and on Facebook or on Instagram, at Accessible South Africa. And is that where people can find your podcast as well then? The podcast is um, on on the website, yes, on the Accessible South Africa website. There is a link to the podcast episodes there. You can also find us wherever you get your your podcasts from. So on Downcast or on the iTunes or I think it's on the Google Store as well. Okay, just look up Accessible South Africa podcast then. Absolutely. Accessible South Africa travel podcast, yes. Okay. And, uh, of course, if people want to pick up A Different Way of Seeing, uh, that's available on Amazon, as well as uh, maybe get some books for your children with the Missy Mouse. And uh, that'd be a great way to support Lois and her work and uh, get to uh, enjoy some travel stories from a different perspective. 
Absolutely. Right. It would be great if people would, would like to pick up the book and take a look at it. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Well, it's been great to join you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Josh. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I had a lot of fun talking with Lois, and I also learned a lot. I hope that you enjoy listening as well. I encourage you to check out Lois's website, loisstrahan.com. That's L-O-I-S-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N.com. I also highly encourage you to pick up her books, either A Different Way of Seeing or One of the Missing Mouse Adventures on Amazon. Be sure to tune into the Accessible South Africa Travel Podcast and follow Lois on Twitter. Links will be in the description. We would also love to have you on the Accessible Travel Forum, www.accessibletravelforum.com. The more users we have, the more useful the site will become. Be sure to ask questions and share your knowledge. You can also follow us on Twitter at AccessibleTF. That's at AccessibleTF. Please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. Be sure to also give us a five-star rating in iTunes as it'll help us to get discovered by others. Do you have someone who might be interested in being interviewed? Or do you want to be interviewed? If so, then please contact us at podcast at accessibletravelforum.com. That's podcast at accessibletravelforum.com. Keep enjoying your travels and hopefully we'll bump into each other along the way. Until next time, I'm Josh and this is have disability, we'll travel.